Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're bringing something a little different today. It's just us, no no guests. We're just going to discuss uh, vulnerability management, which is a topic that Dr. Nikki is very passionate and experienced with. Uh, so I'm looking forward to diving in because I know vulnerability management is a concept that's been around for a long time. It's very important to many organizations in nearly you know every industry you could think of. Um, so with that said, you know, what do you what would you say the biggest reason is why vulnerability management is still so difficult for organizations? Yeah, so this is kind of a complex question because you know we I, I kind of get this question a lot, like why are we still talking about patch management? Why are we still talking about vulnerability management? You know, shouldn't these problems have been solved already? And I think that for the most part, we have such increasingly complex systems, such increasingly complex environments. We have hybrid cloud environments now. We're increasingly doing more software development, as well as trying to get away from some of these legacy systems. So we have to think about all this complexity. One really good example is, you know, a Windows 7 to Windows 10 migration. Chances are during that time, you're going to still have your Windows 7 environment. You're going to have your new Windows 10 environment. So you're going to need to be patching both simultaneously. You'll need to have testing. You're going to have to have a pilot. You're going to have to have more users. All these things are going to start changing, and that's just one migration for an environment. Along that same line, not just an increasingly complex environment, there are so many vulnerabilities released every single day. And these are only the ones that we know about. So, you know, the NVD, the National Vulnerability Database, is where all of those vulnerabilities are. We get CVE IDs associated with those vulnerabilities. But in 2020 alone, there were over 18,000 vulnerabilities published. So those are the only ones that were published. And then of those, uh, you know, only some of them aren't even scored. Some of them don't have patches. Some of them are exploitable and don't have patches. So I think it's it's kind of that layered complexity that we get. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then I know going back traditionally, like it's always been cyclical in the sense that like, you know, as soon as a patch comes out, there's always a push, like get it, get it in place right away. Uh, but then we've seen some cases where the patch itself can serve as a vessel to, you know, be a, a, a vulnerability or, you know, impact the organization in a negative way. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about how do we expedite patching activity if needed, but also be cautious about how quickly we apply this software to our environment? Because it could be it could be malicious itself. Yeah, so that's a great point. And I think, you know, this take this takes it back to the solar winds conversation from last year where, uh, you know, that I think that bad patch was out for over a year. Uh, at least maybe longer. And so here, here's the thing, right? So we, we start getting into this conversation about, well, should we be patching? How quickly should we be patching? Ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to keep patching. <laughs> you do want to keep patching your environment. But I'm a big, big fan of having a test environment. When I ran a virtual desktop environment, we had a test environment where we could test every single patch but we still had a three-day patch management cycle. So I was still able to get that patch into our virtual desktop environment, get some testing done, run our scans, make sure everything looks okay, and then deploy. Something like SolarWinds, I, I will say just as a kind of a caveat, I am a little nervous about that going forward because we don't know, we didn't know about it for so long and we don't know what else out there has already been exploited right now and is in environments. So I think it kind of changed the landscape about how we think about risk management in general. 
We do have to consider that patches might be malicious, but at the same time, if we leave something uh, like a critical vulnerability, let's say on, you know, exchange or something, we're like, well, we don't want to patch it because we're not sure you could be opening yourself up to other things. So it's what's my best case scenario. But I think ultimately it's going to be to continue patching. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting dichotomy we find ourselves in, you know, as as either road either road has their risks or challenges associated with them. And then you have like, you know, a vast array of, you know, diverse ecosystem among organizations and maturity and how how quickly they upgrade software, apply patches, things like that. But there's also organizations who have a lot of legacy technologies, legacy software. You know, with that said, why do you think it's so important to patch or mitigate end of life software? And what are some challenges with, with doing that? So this is actually one of my favorite topics. I've been kind of you know, we use the term foot stomping, end of life, EOL software, and how to kind of get rid of it in your environment for for a while. It was part of what kind of interested me in in doing doctoral research. It's a challenge for a lot of a lot of organizations. So especially if you have specialty software that you're using for something, web applications, whatever it might be, you know, you've got an old version of Java. I hear that one all the time. It's like, well, we can't update because we have to use this old version of Java. And at the end of the day, you don't. It's going to take some development. It might take some resources and some budget, but leaving that end of life software, unless you can have some sort of mitigating controls. So unless you have network segmentation, unless you have, you know, it's a standalone system, nobody has access to it. You know, your risk is a lot smaller then. But if you're using something that's a public facing website and you're using this old version of Java, that is not going to fly. (laughs) I know I would never recommend, you know, using something like that because at the end of the day, someone can scan that system and say, oh, Ooh, I see Java 6 on here. Why am I seeing Java 6? Wow, I can exploit that super easily. So I think it's about kind of coming up with a plan and identifying end-of-life software before it's end-of-life. So a year out, you should have a plan and say, okay, I have my list of software. I know what we have in the environment and maybe what's even coming into the environment. Let's get a uh, let's kind of get a workflow going where I can say, you know, I'm going to get a reminder, you know, 6 months out, 4 months out, 3 months out that this software is getting end of life, let's come up with a plan. Let's set aside a budget. Let's figure out how we can get away from this because those ultimately can be the biggest gap uh, in your environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for organizations that have like long acquisition timelines, uh, you know, you know, these things are coming in many cases. It's it's critical to start planning up front and preparing to transition off of that, off of that software. You know, just to pivot a bit as we look towards more modern architectures or, or implementations, you know, things such as DevSecOps and CICD pipelines, in the context of like CICD and DevSecOps, does vulnerability management change? And if so, how how so? Yes, definitely. It's uh, the the landscape of vulnerability management is changing. And that's where sort of that, that conversation of increasingly complex systems, where we start to talk about uh, how those things can actually be improved by using DevSecOps, how they can be improved by using Docker uh, images. So Traditionally, you know, patch management, we're downloading a patch, we're installing it, whether that's, you know, through SCCM or something to a workstation, even to a virtual desktop, we've got to update the image. You know, now we're talking about getting things updated, basically before that image is put out. It's like, hey, this this is getting updated before the images is even pushed out. I'm a big fan of virtualization and CICD. I think they really help streamline the patch management and vulnerability management process. And it's the same conversation we've had a couple of times about where you're kind of moving security to the left. You're you're including it before you're even getting to production. So it's not like, you know, just like Dr. Latier said, you know, it's like we're not waiting until production before we say, uh-oh, we've got a problem. It's already fixed way, way, way before. And security can evaluate those images. They can evaluate those things before they even go into production. So I think overall, things are going to start to get easier. 
I think they are, especially once people get more hands-on, you know, uh, security people get more hands-on uh, with DevSecOps and CICD and being able to understand how the technology works. Cause that's a big, that's a big part of, I think where we're, we're kind of seeing that shift now, but once people can start getting educated, they can get hands-on with the technology and really see how it works. I am very, very hopeful that vulnerability management is going to get a lot easier for people. Yeah, I definitely think I think you're right. Things are going to improve, uh, but like you said, there's a, there's definitely a learning curve associated with it. You know, ultimately, we're working towards that goal of shifting security left. You know, we all know uh, catching vulnerabilities earlier in the life cycle is both less costly and less impactful on the organization. Right? It, it, the vulnerability hasn't been in place as long. Maybe it never even makes it to a runtime production environment. And then you talked about containerization. That's another great piece uh, to touch on. Is rather than like patching in place. You know, this is actually something we just talked about last night in a lecture I participated in with Carnegie Mellon, where I'm uh, participating in their CISO program, is like treating you know, your infrastructure as uh, cattle rather than pets, you know, if you've ever heard of the terminology. So rather than taking care of it, feeding it, you know, nurturing it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you rip and replace, you don't really care about the, the infrastructure, you know, you rip and replace it with a, a new image that's hardened and updated appropriately. Uh, that way you're not having these instances with, that have been in place for so long, you know, the, with vulnerabilities in place for so long and, and kind of creating a very uh, risky scenario for your organization. I wanted to hop in there too, because that was one of the challenges that we saw uh, in virtualization from an IT operations perspective too. When you have an image that's been around for so long, you start to have issues anyway. You know, you kind of want to keep those things refreshed, building new images, building new infrastructure, because I know I've seen in the past, it is always better to start from scratch than to try to make an old server work, to try to make an old appliance work. Like it's always better to just start from scratch and better functionality and better security at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. Another another aspect of, of, you know, approaching security and your infrastructure that way, and this is a concept I first heard with the Air Force where I uh, did some work, is, uh, you know, we, we think of the concept of dwell time, right? If an adversary has compromised uh, a server, an instance, et cetera, a container, the longer that's in place, the longer they're able to dwell. But if you're constantly churning your infrastructure, it makes it much more difficult for an adversary to dwell in your environment, which can also, uh, you know, recre- decrease your risk and, and, and mitigate some of the impact they may have on you. I also wanted to ask you about, you know, COTS versus open source, open source software. Uh, I think lately we've seen definitely a push to embrace open source software for many organizations, many communities, which is great in some regard. But, you know, on that topic, when it comes to vulnerabilities and vulnerability management, is one more secure than the other? And what are some of the pros and cons of, of the two? I love this question. This is a great question. So I am always a little nervous about open source software, especially I come from the uh, you know, the public sector. So I'm always a little, little hesitant about using open source software, mostly because you start to lose some control over when it's patched, what vulnerabilities actually exist. You may not, you may not know. We may, we may not have CVE IDs for those, but they also provide a lot of functionality. So for me, it's like, we have to figure out a way to balance that functionality and that security. So at the end of the day, if, if this tool is coming in and it's going to really improve some process that we have, you know, maybe we can say, okay, let's use it for three months and then we're going to get rid of it. And that's okay, right? Like, so we have at least some time on there. As far as COTS versus open source, open source can be really great. There, because there are so many people that are out there developing software and tools and frameworks because they want to, because they found a problem and they're trying to solve it. And they don't care if they get paid or not. I mean, it's like, hey, I've, I found a problem. I want to fix it. And I want to help other people fix this problem too. So yes, I think COTS may be maybe a little bit more secure, but 
I think they both kind of come with their own risks. Yeah. Yeah. I think we tend to, you know, we always tend to describe and discuss everything in like black and white. And and really, in reality, there's much more of a dichotomy there. You know, I've I've heard people make the argument that, you know, COTS, you, you kind of have security through obscurity. You, like you can't see what's in place there. You don't have that visibility. Where open source software, you know, many make the argument that you can see, you can, you can peer behind the curtain, you know what's there, you can evaluate it yourself and evaluate the risk. But there's other aspects at play, like what you just talked about, you know, for example, with COTS, you, you can, maybe you have a guaranteed uh, level of support from the vendor or something like that, where an open source project, what if it fizzles out? What if it loses momentum among the open source community and you don't have the ability to maintain this, but is a critical part of now of the way you operate or the way you uh, architected your system? Uh, so I definitely think there's a give and take there. I think you just made a really important point where if you start to rely too heavily on open source software... That, that's a, that is absolutely right. You could start to rely on it. And then it's like the developer or developers have moved on to a different project, a different tool, uh, and they're not maintaining it. They're not updating it anymore. And now it's part of your business process. And what do you do? So it, it it's kind of not only from a security perspective, but even from a business and functionality perspective, we have to understand how we're using this tool. And is this really going to be part of our business? Because you, at the end of the day, you might want to go with COTS if you think that hey, this is really a part of our business process now. You know, this is something we have to use. You might want something that's going to be updated regularly and something that you would have support potentially on. Yeah, and I mean, maybe you have the the staff or resources in place to even sustain something yourself initially, but like, you know, that resource may move on. That person may change roles or may move on to another company. You never know. Uh, so there's definitely a, some considerations to make. Another, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is a big part of vulnerability management and scanning is uh, tooling, right? And I want to ask how important is it to have like reliable and accurate tooling? And is it possible for different tools to produce, you know, disparate different outcomes? And, and if so, you know, how does that impact an organization that has a pretty broad, diverse portfolio of tools? Because, you know, that can produce situations where you have different outcomes, different outputs and, and cause a lot of confusion and maybe, uh, you know, tension even among teams. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yes. So I'll try to take the first part of that question first, as far as reliability and accuracy. Yes, if you have several different tools in your environment that are supposed to be supporting the same function, yes, you may be getting different, you know, different threads, different information from both. Let's say you have McAfee and Symantec in your environment, and maybe you have them for different, you know, different reasons, or, you know, maybe one's, you know, you're kind of edging out, but you still have both. If you start looking at both, they're both going to have different, they're going to be getting different updates. They're going to have different sources of updates. One might find something. Okay, so a great example like virus total. So if you put something into virus total, there are what, 70 different, 75 different kind of engines that it pulls from to see if something's actually malware. One of them may show that it's malware and the other 70 might show that it's not. And that gives you kind of a, a good picture of like, wow. Okay, so we don't really know how reliable our data is. Let's say I have my scanning tool that finds this thing that uh, it says it's vulnerable. Well, I'm going to go back in and maybe check virus total and see, because maybe it's not. Maybe it was just a, a, a bad patch or a corrupted file. Uh, I think you have to be really careful about using multiple different tools, because uh, if you are getting different inf differing information, it can be really hard to sort out what's... And then you're going to spend time trying to figure out, is this a is this a vulnerability? Is this a malicious file? All this time that you're spending going back and forth where... You know, if you had one tool, you can just kind of use that as your source and maybe use something like VirusTotal as a backup. So yeah, so as far as reliability and accuracy, those can definitely be a problem. Impact, um, as far as a broad portfolio of tooling, 
I'm very, I'm always very concerned when people have 10 or 20 different security tools in their environment. I don't think it's necessary, number one. And number two, if you have that many tools, it's really hard to get them all configured properly. Because chances are, if you have a small security team, you know, if you have a big security team, that's one thing. But if you have a smaller security team or, or less people maybe uh, managing multiple tools, it can be really hard to have them at their highest level of functionality. Like I'll take Tenable as an example. When Tenable is configured properly and you have your environment configured properly to work well with Tenable, you can get a very accurate results. But if you have authentication issues, if you have network issues, if you have IP addresses or IP ranges that aren't covered, then you start getting bad information or not complete information. Uh, so I always say, take the tools you have. You don't necessarily need to buy a new tool. Maybe take the tools you have and see what maybe additional functionality you're not using. Maybe there's an add-on to that specific tool that's new from the company and, and might be able to help you know solve some of the challenges that you have without adding on another tool, without adding on you know more complexity into the environment. Yeah, the reason I always like to bring up the tooling conversation like that is, uh, you know, from a practitioner's perspective, I've worked in environments where we do have like a small security team is spread very thin. And, you know, maybe leadership keeps getting pitches from a vendor and they're like, oh, this, this tool does this and it sounds so great. And then like next thing you know, you have this new, to- new tool in your portfolio. And as you said, it's not really configured all the way. Maybe we have tools that have duplicative capabilities, right? And they're stepping on each other. And it's like, well, which one's the author- authoritative source? Which one are we looking to? for this kind of data or that kind of data. And, and and you never really get the return on investment and your security team is spending more time trying to implement the tools and configure the tools uh, than they are actually gaining any value or insight or actionable information from the tooling. And I, and I, th- I think back to cloud, you know, when I think about cloud and moving to the cloud, you often hear uh, people talk about application rationalization, like taking a look at your application portfolio and rationalizing it. Maybe you have some applications you can do away with things for, things, for example, like that. I think when security tools are discussed, we need to have the same conversation. Look at our security tooling portfolio. Uh, how do we rationalize this? You know, what's doing what? Are there duplicative capabilities? Do we need all these tools? Can we get rid of some of these tools? Do we even have the staff to know how to use these tools? Right. Uh, so yeah, I'm a little little uh, passionate about the tooling topic just because it really, really can burn out a security team. And it can also right. uh, create risk if you're not really generating valuable information, actionable information from these tools. Yeah. And then you start getting into the conversation too of, well, are we tracking down now more false positives? Are we tracking down now more alerts, you know, than we can really evaluate and tailor? Because that's part of it too, is to get a tool, the best functionality that you can out of a tool, you have to start working on tailoring. You have to customize it to your environment. Most uh, software is not going to come out of the box and just immediately be able to work in, you know, whatever your specific environment is. So it's taking the time to kind of get to know that tool, see what the functionality really can do. And yeah, I would say think about replacing a tool instead of necessarily supplementing. Yeah, those are all great points. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, from the leadership perspective is understanding that that there is a tailoring tuning process and giving your time your team you know time to mature with a tool set, for example, definitely something to think about. So knowing some of the challenges associated with vulnerability scanning and vulnerability management, uh, do you still think think it's a major component as far as securing your network in like a continuous monitoring type program? Yeah, so I think uh, vulnerability scanning, again, it can be great. It can be an important component to a, a security program and continuous monitoring too. But I think there has to be in the same way that I feel like when you're doing a security assessment, you know, you can't just rely on reports and, uh, you know, kind of your output that you're getting from your scanner. You need to kind of check some of those those settings. Let's say I'm looking for a registry policy, or excuse me, a registry setting. And, you know, Tenable says, 
no, it's not configured properly. Okay, well, let me go check that setting and see if it's not configured properly or if I'm looking at a false positive. Let me let me figure that out. So I think just looking at outputs and saying, oh, okay, this is the information. Maybe look at it with a more discerning eye and also manual checks, I think are important. If you can spare the resources and the time can be really helpful. But there are so many other great security tools out there to help supplement. So again, it's like that, yes, vulnerability scanning is really important. But as we move to an increasingly you know, DevSecOps, uh, we're moving to cloud, we're moving to all these other things. There are so many other great uh, security tools, like with AWS. There are a lot of in-house AWS security tools that you can use that are going to have great access to your environment and provide good information. Uh, Some of them are free, some of them you have to pay for, but you can get some some great functionality and some great information from them uh, that are not just vulnerability scanning. Yeah, definitely. I I actually talk to people quite a bit about, you know, embracing in some cases, you know, cloud native tools from the cloud service provider. Uh, But of course, there's always, you know, scenarios where you may be using multiple different cloud service providers and you need a unified tool set that gives you visibility across, you know, multiple cloud service providers. Um, Another thing I wanted to bring up and get your thoughts on is, in my opinion, not all vulnerabilities are created equal. I've I've, I've worked in environments where it's like, oh, we got to resolve all critical findings. And it's like, well, this critical finding is on, uh, you know, a legacy server that has doesn't doesn't have two factor authentication and is publicly accessible. Where this critical finding is on, like something that's behind much more rigorous, you know, uh, mitigating controls and other other factors that make it less accessible for an attacker. For example, where where does context go in this conversation? How do we try to convince leadership or prioritize vulnerability remediation and mitigations with context in place? Yeah, great, great question too. This is something that also drives my research because I think there were, so in, um, I think it was 2020, 13% of the vulnerabilities were rated as critical. It might not sound like a lot, but 13% of, you know, 18,000 vulnerabilities rated as critical can be a lot in any environment, especially if you have a complex environment or lots of different software uh, and hardware. Risk man- So this is where we talk about like the bigger picture of risk management, because risk management is like that overarching Yes, I see a critical vulnerability. I understand maybe I have timelines and deadlines, but for my environment specifically, that standalone system, I know that only five people have access to it. It's not on the network. I can fix, I can take some time to fix that. You have to think about prioritization as far as the business goes. Um, We've talked about this a couple of times, I think, with some guests where you have to think about the business. If you have public facing servers, those should always come first. That should always be the first thing to say, people have access to this. They can see this. I need to make sure that this is most secure. And understanding that there are a lot of critical vulnerabilities that are released all the time. So no, uh, not all critical vulnerabilities are are released equally. Some are exploitable. Some are are not. It's the same way we talk about low vulnerabilities. Some are exploitable. Some are not. So I think it's about taking a full picture. There are some tools out there that are trying to solve that problem about creating a more customized uh, risk rating for your environment. So I highly suggest looking into some of those like Tenable has uh, Tenable has VPR. There are some other products out there that, that are doing something similar. So I highly suggest either if you don't have a vulnerability management expert on your team, hiring one uh, because they can be super, super helpful to, ki- to, to kind of get vulnerabilities under control and help you understand risk as a whole. And start looking at maybe some of the tools you already have in your environment and, and figure out customized reporting. Understand what are your most critical assets. Because at the end of the day, if your critical assets have critical and high vulnerabilities on them, that's what I'm most worried about as a, as a vulnerability you know, person. But yeah, it's, it's not about, it's the same thing talking about reporting. 
it's not about just taking an output and believing what you see. You've got to kind of dig into it a little bit and and maybe understand it. Yeah, stellar advice. I think that's really great advice for people working in vulnerability management and trying to mitigate risk for an organization. Uh, so the last question I'll wrap it up with is like, as we move forward, since you're researching and as working as a practitioner as well, uh, where do you see vulnerability management headed? You know, what's on the horizon for us uh, in the community? So I am hoping that uh, through not only some research, but just the the way that that security tools are going. There's so many out there. There's so many uh, that you can customize and use for your environment. I see vulnerability management changing from that tooling perspective, where hopefully we're using less tooling and getting more robust results. But I also see some of the more increasingly complex threats and and challenges that we have coming down the road. You know, solar winds really changed the way I think about vulnerability management, and I'm sure a lot of other people too. I am a little more skeptical about what software I put in the environment and how it's configured. Uh, Because again, who has privileged access? You know, it's not just about what software you have, but who has privileged access? Where do they have privileged access? What is my tool actually seeing? What does my tool have access to? So I think it's about trying to take that holistic view. I see that really being the future of vulnerability management is I'm not just, you know, looking at patches. I'm not just looking at security controls. I'm thinking about my entire environment and, and what I can do to minimize risk or potentially, you know, segment the risk, try to try to mitigate if I can, but really trying to look at it from a, uh, a whole view. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of uh, great insights on where things are headed, but also some of the challenges that still exist uh, for the organ- like for the industry, I should say. Uh, so with that said, I definitely want to appreciate, uh, I definitely appreciate everyone tuning in today. And I hope you all uh, gain some valuable information around vulnerability management. Thank you, uh, Dr. Nikki. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Resilient Cyber Podcast, hosted by Chris Hughes and Dr. Nikki Robinson. Check out new episodes and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other place you may listen to podcasts. You'll also find us on our website at resilientcyber.io and the Resilient Cyber Podcast on LinkedIn. See you next week. And remember, stay resilient.